This is Infidel One. Offending Coyote Down. Offending Coyote Down. Roger that. Welcome to Trappin' Radio. We're proud, organic, free-range, wild fur farmers of North America. Let me tell you a little story about how I was raised. Every day work, every day pray. God, family, friends, yeah, everybody sins. A winner never quits, and a quitter never wins. Help folks in need, don't fall for greed. A jealous man is weak, so think before you speak. If you love them, let them know. If you hate, let it go. Fast can be fun, but sometimes you need slow. God is all good, the devil is so real. So listen up, y'all, because this is how I feel. I won't back up, I don't back down I've been raised up to stand my ground Take my job, but not my guns Tax my check till I ain't got none Except for the good Lord of above I answer to no one Now let's cover our sponsors. They do a lot to help support Trapping Radio. So I'm asking you guys out there and gals, to help support our sponsors as they keep trapping radio on the air. First sponsors, Oki Cable and Trap Supply. Jeb's the owner of this. He's out of Oklahoma, super guy. You'll not meet anybody nicer. It's somebody you're gonna wanna deal with. You can reach him at OKTrapSupply.com. You can give Jeb a call at 918-429-4648. Not only does he do trap supply guys, he's a fur buyer, so if you're around the Oklahoma or surrounding states, give him a call with your fur. When you need stuff, give him a call and he'll get it out to you as soon as he can. Our second sponsor is F&T Fur Harvesters Trading Post. Everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. Guys, if you're into trapping fur, hunting fur, chasing fur with dogs, you're not gonna be able to think of hardly anything that you can't get from F&T. You can reach them at fntpost.com. You can also give them a call at 989-727-8727. Whatever you want, F&T's got it. Blue Ridge Outdoor Supplies. Scott Payne is the owner of this business. He's in Elton, Virginia. He also has a lure line, Mountain Rebel Lures and Baits. He's got a great coyote trapping video. He's also a fur buyer in Virginia. Anything that you're looking for and your trapping needs, give Scott a call and he'll get it right out to you. Wildlife Control Supplies, proven solutions for wildlife control, delivering value, expertise, and products to the wildlife individual. If you're an ADC business, control business, even fur trapping, you need to look at these guys' website. Top-notch company, have everything you would want, even the odd stuff that ADC guys are looking for. You can reach them at wildlifecontrolsupplies.com. You can give them a call at 877-684-7262. International number is 860-844-0101. If you're a wildlife control professional, you need to have wildlife control supplies as one of your favorites on your computer or your phone because when you come across something that you need specialized equipment, Alan will get it right out to you. Now let's go trapping. See, I'm a flag flying, Bible toting son of a gun. Yeah, I'm hell on the heart. 
one just a rebel on the run scared don't know it fear don't feel it the truth is the light sometimes you gotta fight good beats bad right beats wrong i'm a ballroom preacher and this is my song i'm climbing for the top representing for the country i'm the people's champ right out to dear camp shotgun toter republican voter hank jr supporter let's protect our border to hell with anyone who don't believe in the usa because this is what i say i won't back up i don't back down i've been raised up to stand my ground take my job but not my before we go to the interview tonight, which was with Ryan Schaefer, uh, Raging Cajun out of Louisiana, talking about his uh, mink trap and everything else, I mean, he, he's always just a fun interview and fun to listen to. I have some news that, uh, that I want to tell everybody about. I've never been to this show. I'm excited about it. I've heard a lot about it. I've had a lot of requests to go up there. I'm going going to be at the Sportsman's Rendezvous in uh, New, Little Valley, New York. It's it's August 8th, 9th, and 10th this year. We're going to be uh, all kind of things going on. You're going to have demos and raffles and barbecue and live music and, and some stuff with Mountain Man. They're going to have tailgaters. They're going to have a lot of dealers. It's only $5 a day. You can camp there. Uh, they're going to have an auction on Saturday night. The hours are, are uh, on Friday are 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Saturday 8 to 6, and Sunday 8 to 3. Now, I'm going to be giving a demo up there, and when they ask me what to do it on, you know, a lot of times I've got demos on bobcat trapping or coyote trapping or beaver, otter, or, or something like that. And, and I'm going to do one a little bit different this year. If you're if you're in the area and you wanted to come to a show and it's going to be a, a kind of more of a question and answer type thing, Saturday at 1 p.m. I'm going to be giving a demo on how to make a living trapping, how I've done that, and and the realities of that. Uh, what you know, how do I do predator control? How do I get customers? How do I get paid? You know, if, if you're coming to that demo, be prepared. If you've got something you've wanted to ask, I'm going to be standing there right in front of you, and you're going to ask it, and I'm going to answer it. So that's one thing that it'll be at this show. I'm looking, to me, I'm really excited about going there. I've heard about this show for years. Um, it's, it's kind of squirrely how you, you get into it just because it's the, the way that it's set up, but... I got into it and I'm going to be giving a demo at 1 o'clock. I'll have tables set up and everything there. And they have a lot of other good demos and stuff going on that if you're in the area, guys, just come on up there. If, if, you, if, if, if you're in that area and you've ever wanted to ask me something or something like that, I'll be standing there. And if I can help you in any way possible, I will see you at Little Valley, New York. So let's go ahead, get on with the interview with the one and only Ryan Schaefer. Before we go to the interview tonight, which was with Ryan Schaefer, uh, Raging Cajun out of Louisiana, talking about his uh, mink trap and everything else. I mean, he, he's always just a fun interview and fun to listen to. I have some news that, uh, that I want to tell everybody about. I've never been to this show. I'm excited about it. I've heard a lot about it. I've had a lot of requests to go up there 
I'm going gonna be at the Sportsman's Rendezvous in uh, New, Little Valley, New York. It's it's August 8th, 9th, and 10th this year. We're gonna be uh, all kind of things going on. You're gonna have demos and raffles and barbecue and live music and, and some stuff with Mountain Man. They're gonna have tailgaters. You're gonna have a lot of dealers. It's only five dollars a day. You can camp there. Uh, they're going to have an auction on Saturday night. The hours are, are uh, on Friday are 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Saturday 8 to 6, and Sunday 8 to 3. Now, I'm going to be giving a demo up there, and when they ask me what to do it on, you know, a lot of times I've got demos on bobcat trapping or coyote trapping or beaver, otter, or, or something like that. And, and I'm going to do one a little bit different this year. If you're if you're in the area and you wanted to come to a show and it's going to be a, a kind of more of a question and answer type thing, Saturday at 1 p.m. I'm going to be giving a demo on how to make a living trapping, how I've done that, and and the realities of that. Uh, what you know, how do I do predator control? How do I get customers? How do I get paid? You know, if, if you're coming to that demo, be prepared. If you've got something you've wanted to ask, I'm going to be standing there right in front of you, and you're going to ask it, and I'm going to answer it. So that's one thing that it'll be at this show. I'm looking, to me, I'm really excited about going there. I've heard about this show for years. Um, it's it's kind of squirrely how you, you get into it just because it's the, the way that it's set up, but... I got into it and I'm going to be giving a demo at 1 o'clock. I'll have tables set up and everything there. And they have a lot of other good demos and stuff going on that if you're in the area, guys, just come on up there. If, if, you, if, if, if you're in that area and you've ever wanted to ask me something or something like that, I'll be standing there. And if I can help you in any way possible, I will see you at Little Valley, New York. So let's go ahead, get on with the interview with the one and only Ryan Schaefer. Okay, we're, we're I'm with uh, Ryan Schaefer, the Raging Cajun. That, that I've been lucky enough, this is the third interview if I remember right. Yeah, three. It's, it's always humorous, educational, and, and memorable. So it's it's late now. It's it's like nine ten. So you may slow down a little bit. I don't know. It's nine ten local time. I'm still on Louisiana time, Me so too. I'm good for another couple hours. Well, to go for us to get boost in the morning, yeah. For next year, we got to get up at three our time to get there in time to wait in line till seven to get a booth, so we can give them money to get a booth next year. Instead of them just walking around and collecting from the people that are there. Yeah. So if y'all ever get big, <laughs> a big organization in Louisiana where people really want to come all the time don't, don't do it like, like that, that. Yeah. no it, it, it's not cool that's crazy because because little man is with me he was like what time we get up in the morning i said well we need to be at five so we need to leave here at 4 45. he goes that's 3 45 with our time i'm like okay hey, so what are we doing <laughs> i go we're gonna sit till seven yeah wait <laughs> in line with everybody else yeah he's a seems like a little trooper he's having a good oh, time man i, I I wish I had five of them. Yeah, but what would you do when you didn't have them? I didn't sleep very much. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's, he's worth it. He, yeah, I mean, it's uh, he, he just turned 17. I'm waiting for him to, you know, he's already talking about Toyota trucks, and I'm worried he's going to find some little girl. But he, 
Okay. If he's smart, he'll find a girl with a Toyota truck. There you go. <laughs> I need, to, I need to talk to this cat. That's what I'm telling. But I mean, he's 17 years old. I can go to Texas. I can leave him a list that's a mile long. I mean, you're, I'm going a month. Yeah. I've got this buckets of crap everywhere. They're, they're labeled. He's got a whiteboard. He keeps his own hours on his phone. I've checked him two or three times. They're perfect. I go away, I come back from Texas, I go in there, everything's bottled, everything's labeled, everything's put right where it's supposed to be, doors always locked, lights always off, and I'm like, if most Americans would act like this at that time, 16 year old kid, yeah, I would be booming. Dream come true. Yeah, I've been told him, he's retired from Predator Control Group. Okay. We bought that house for the new lure shed. It's got a master bedroom with a bathroom. I took him back there, first day he went in there. I said, this is Travis's room. Right. Here. So when you do something stupid and your parents kick you out, you got a, you got somewhere to stay, you got a kitchen in there, you got a bathroom and a living room. He's living the dream. And he's like, and he's getting really? Paid. Oh, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's getting paid well. well, yeah. That's yeah. one thing, you gotta take care of him. He's, he's doing that good. He's yeah. probably in the top 70% in the Dunlap. I pay him well. Yeah. Because he does everything. Hey. So let's get to, you, you get you, you trapped something like what four or five thousand mink this year it out was, of two traps. It was close. I had uh, two and a half traps. I broke one. I kept the other <laughs> half just in case I needed to repair the other two. <laughs> so yeah, pretty. You know, I, I I expanded my 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 trapping uh, line a little bit this year, and and so as such, I, I bought a few dozen traps. But I mean, really, I ran four traps all season. Four dozen traps all season. That was what I ran. Forty-eight. That traps. was it. Forty-eight. BMI is what I ran from my mink. I only trapped body grips, only trapped blind sets, and I ran 48 brand new, out of the box BMIs not that good. I bought, not straight out of the box that I bought at the NTA. <laughs> that, that was my arsenal for mink trapping. Now, let's throw back to last year, 72 mink. It was an awesome, awesome season. I mean, 72 mink compared to the year before, which was zero mink. So, you know, mm -hmm. we're looking, 72 mink was, was big. And I did that with like 30 traps, 36. It was, it was less than four dozen traps and it was mixed BMIs and Victors and everything else. And I figured out what was working and, and, and people that, <clears throat> that haven't heard the previous interview should go back and listen to get where we are today. So we don't have to spell that all back out. But on a very limited number of traps last year, I did very well. At 72, and so over the summer, uh, you know, many, many times, you know, it's the last day of trapping season to the first day of the next is like almost a millennium mm -hmm. when you've done really well. When you had a really bad season, it seems like it gets you real quick. It's like, damn, I got to do this all over again. <laughs> but when you have one of those, yeah, when you have one of those epic seasons, it's like it's never going to get here. So I had a lot of time <clears throat> to think about what worked, what didn't work. How am I ever going to catch more than 72? 72 was just an unimaginable number of mink. How will I ever? Well, the only way you can ever get there is you have to set a goal higher than. You, you won't get there if you don't. So I said, you know, thinking to myself, what's a reasonable goal? What's a goal that's probably not quite attainable? And I shot for the unattainable. I said, I'm going to hit 100 mink. That's like the, the gold standard when you're talking to somebody about otter. Did you catch 100? Did you catch a hundred coon? Did you have? I said, I'd like to be able to tell somebody I caught a hundred mink. It's a big number. It's that extra zero. We got a lot going on with a hundred. I said, I can, 
So I consider that the unattainable goal. I'd get to 75. I did 72, 75 is cool. 100 would be phenomenal. I said, I'm gonna have to expand my, my trapping grounds a little bit, pick up a little bit more ground, and I'm gonna have to set a few extra traps. So sold all my old traps, but all brand new traps, about four dozen brand new BMIs. Let's rip. And it, about halfway through the season, I knew that I had hit 100 but I had no idea where it was gonna end up from there because I had shipped some fur to Napa. Mm -hmm. I still had some in the freezer for days that I was actually working and just trying to skin it and get it in, and I was still running traps and I actually, I lost count, not on purpose, just a couple of days it got crazy in there and I just forgot that I had no idea what I caught and what I put up and what I shipped. So about mid-season, I actually lost count. So all I had left was count what you have and try to remember what you sent and what you, it, it, it got to the point where I just, I didn't, I didn't know what the number was. And late season, we get our big mink run late January to mid-February. Uh, this year was a little off because we had such a ridiculous winter. I don't know you felt it up in Tennessee because we, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, I've been living down there a long time. <laughs> Y'all probably had to wear a coat. We had to wear a coat, and there were days that my door on my truck was frozen shut. Now, what's going on here? What's <laughs> about hell freezing over? Something's going on here. And you get in a, you get when a rubber. Hell freezes over, Louisiana freezes over. Yeah, you get, a, you get in a rubber mallet to beat the beat the ice off your door frame so you can get your truck door open. It, it, was, it was bad. We had three really bad sleep days, and that was accompanied by a week of just, you know, teens, which we never seen anything like that. You know, all the ponds were frozen. I mean under ice trapping in Louisiana. <laughs> Who would have thought about that? So it, there were a few days there that the weather was just bad, bad, bad. But I found out real quick that the worse it got, the better the trapping was. And it wasn't until a few months later after, just a few months ago, after I got everything shipped off and I got to thinking about, okay, what, did, what really happened this year? And when the ponds freeze, it forces the animals to dry ground. Because they're not used to walking on ice. They don't know what the heck's going on out there. They can't swim under because they can't come up. So they just get off of it. And it forces it forces the mink, the otter, the, everything that we trap to the levees to dry ground. And, you know, if you can find a trail, everything is using that trail because they can't swim. There's nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And so the, the last, I, I figured I was close to about 170 mink, 180 mink. I really didn't know, but I'm just kind of guessing to myself where I should be. I gotta catch 15 to 20 more mink if I'm gonna try to hit some major goal here. Mm -hmm. And I pushed hard and that freeze probably is the only thing that pushed me over the top. And I ended up with 212 mink. Dude, that is so awesome. 212 mink. I shipped 188 of them to auction and I ended up with 212. And it was just, and I still got a few that I put on the next auction. But at the final count, that was just, uh, you sit back and you just, I mean, you've probably done it with otter and cats before. You just, I, where did the time go? How do you end up? You know, you go back to the track, you know, you remember those days where you had 18 in a day and you were like, you didn't know who to call first or who to text or where to post it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you, you wish they had a button where you could post it everywhere at one time. But it was those days that you remember back, and, man, I had two or three days that I had over 15 mink. But I had two or three days where I didn't catch a mink. Mm -hmm. How did I end up doing this well? And I take it all back to two years ago having said, you know, I've got to try to do only what works and only that 
and I started looking at some of the long liners that, you know, they go out and they do one thing and they do it well, mm -hmm. but they don't do anything else because it slows them down. The guys that are making the big pocket sets, they use the same trap, the same chain, the same stake, they jump out the truck, they slap in two sets, they go to the next hole. And that's the mentality I've got to have if I'm going to put up numbers. Number one, you got to have the numbers to put up. You got to be able, you got to have the number of animals. You got to have the resources, the land, and you got to have a system that works and is fast and is efficient. And I found that niche. I found that happy medium. I guess that you hear people talk about it. The longliners, they they get into a gear that's just steady and it's just they're not getting crazy. They're, not, they're just a steady pace and they roll with that all day, every day for the whole season. And at the end of the season, they got a thousand red fox, or they got, you know, a thousand coon or 212 mink. That's what I ended up with. And it was because I found a steady pace doing the same thing consistently. I figured the mink out, I used the right trap, the right place, the right time, and it was just, it was awesome. Well, I don't know, I mean, you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, I think the worst, or am I gonna say the worst? That's not the correct phrase I think the the most detrimental someone does is trying to do what you want to do is they mix species trap because mm -hmm. like when Randy goes to Indiana and places and coyote traps you can't get him to think about nothing else right he you know he, he's doing like what you're saying he's got his sister down he you got with red during coon season he's not trapping beaver he's not doing all that other stuff it's just coon that's right when I'm in Texas cats you got to drag me once I don't think I can put another cat set anywhere <laughs> else on 40,000 acres, okay, let's put a coyote set in. You're and, thinking, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, but you know, but oh, yeah. they're paying me, I gotta do it. But until that point, I don't wanna think. And, it, and it's not just me, but I can't think of any meat mixed species trapper that really puts up any it amount knows. of numbers. But most hobby trappers want the numbers, but they don't follow that. They want the multi-species as well. Mm -hmm. and. And I still multi-species trapped, but what I did is I took advantage of the section of time during the season where I knew I could best focus on the single species. So we opened up November 20th, closed March 31st. I've got nuisance work that I've got to do, multi-species work for the farmers down there, uh, coon, otter, all water, but I knew I had to get a certain number of coon out of these areas to keep the farmer happy, the crawfisherman happy. I knew I had to get a certain number of otter out, but I knew I wanted to hit a certain goal on mink. So I strategically planned, I know when the biggest run of mink's gonna be. I'm gonna forget about everything mink but mink for that time. Early I'm gonna hit multi-species, late I'm gonna hit multi-species. The only way I'm gonna hit my goal is to focus on them for that two week stretch. And you call that a meat run? That's a meat run. <laughs> <laughs> That's a meat run. I love that. <laughs> you gotta get it. Well, one thing I figured out quick, ain't nobody gonna get it for you. No. Nobody's gonna get it for you. And I said, man, I, I really got, like right before our, what I call the, the meat run, our big buck rut, if you will call it. I call it, you know, I call it the rut because these, these male men go nuts. But it's a short window, it's 10 days. Two weeks at the most that you get that huge rush. Same with cats. Same with cats and you know, we catch mink the whole season. We catch one here, two there, but you don't get that highway, travelway, tunnels everywhere that you get during that huge push. 
And right in the middle of that push was when we had those sleep days and it kind of threw the animals off a little bit as much as it threw me off, it threw them off. So that 10 days was probably cut down to seven or eight solid days out of the 12 that you, you, that you probably would have gotten. So every trap I had, I knew I had to have set every day. So 48 traps. I mean, it's nothing for people that are long line and they're running three or 400. But if you got... But you, but you need to clarify something. If I'm road trapping somewhere for Otter, Northern Louisiana, my big butt's not going 12 feet from the truck. Exactly. That's not the situation you're in. If no. You, if you can figure out how to run as many conno bears as I uh, did in Louisiana out of the truck be, and you do it in levees, I want to know about it. It'd be sick. It would be, that number would triple. The, the problem I've got is farm to farm, let's say I'm running a 100 acre farm. It's a 20 minute drive in the truck. Unload the four wheeler, unstrap it, drop the trailer, run out there and then you're on foot for half of the way for another 30 minutes to an hour checking traps, pulling animals, remakes, the remakes will kill you and then trying to do a little bit of scouting for a new sign and set on that new sign, get back in the truck, load the four wheeler, strap it up, go to the next farm, might be 20 miles down the road do it all over again, unload, so you, you know probably over half of my time on a trap run is spent driving, loading and unloading the four wheeler and, and that that just so eats up, like you said. If you could figure out a way to streamline that, way to streamline that, when you're on the road and you're stopping at every cross, every bridge, and you jump out and put five sets, you don't have that downtime that you have when you're forced to use a four wheeler because of the terrain. You don't have the road system, so it's the the nature of the trapping. I'm not saying that the terrain's hard because it's not. It's just it's resource intensive. You've got to have a boat. You got to have a four wheeler or side by side. You got to have some means to get around other than a truck. You tear the levees up, or, or that, or the level, the levees are just not big enough for a truck. Okay. A lot of times, you just can't take a truck down there. You know, it's not. You could walk it. I mean, they're they're manicured. They're bush hogged. It's not like it's a not like going through a swamp, but it's just limited access. Um, there are people. There are guys that I know the trap that just trap the perimeter. If they can't get there in the truck, they don't trap it but you miss so much opportunity there, you know, you, you might catch 20% of the animals in that area. And uh, if you want to put that kind of numbers up, you just, you got to get in there and beat your way down the middle levees and find out. And the meat don't move as much there as I think they do other places because there's so much food. You know, if you're on a, on a stream system, you're driving the road, road trapping, you stop the bridge, you make a couple of pocket sets, the meat that are traveling that stream, it might travel a mile, it might travel a little bit farther. The mink I'm trapping, I don't know that they travel 100 yards, mm-hmm. you know, overnight. There's no reason to. They got a, a they got a hole or a den, and they walk three feet, and they got all the crawfish they want to eat. If they're not chasing a female, they're not moving very far. So you've got to move a lot more to catch them. It's that one to two week period when those mink are traveling that you've got to take advantage of because they're basically coming to you. You set a trap, eventually something's going to run through it. Whereas if you're not taking advantage of that breeding season, you've got to get to them, and you've got to cover a lot more ground where I am to get to the mink as you would in an area that they've actually got to go look for food every day. Mm-hmm. Well, that mink's got to go travel and find a fish to eat or uncover a crawfish under a rock in the middle of a stream bed. And these things are running, they jump in a crawfish cage. It's got five pounds of crawfish already in it. <laughs> they don't have to catch anything. The, the crawfish are already caught in the crawfish cage. All they got to do is dive down there and eat what they want. That's why yours are so much bigger than the rest of Southern Mink. I tell you, I don't know if they're that much bigger, but I can tell you one thing. They will wear your butt out on a fleshing beam. There is no leaving a saddle on a Louisiana Mink. A saddle sitting on top of three-eighths inch of fat. 
and you got to get it all off of there. You know, oh, man, now you have to push some pictures. Man, they're going to dock you for leaving the saddle. So nobody, they'd have docked me if I'd have left what was under it because they'd have thrown it away with no value because it would have been rotten by the time we got there. It's just amazing how much fat these mink have. I mean, there's because not, other, other minks got to work for a living. Yours don't. Yeah, mine are, yeah. These they are, look like me. These mink, they don't have to work for anything. I mean, they literally, 10 feet from anywhere they are, there's plenty of food. And so they're a nuisance to the crawfish industry because they just annihilate the, the crawfish in the cages. So I'm catching them as a nuisance species. But um, the big thing about that is you've got to be mole and you've got to go out there and hump it in there and get them. You know, it, it's, I kind of equate it to beaver trapping, which I detest. I can't stand trapping beaver. Because it's labor intensive. There's nothing about a beaver that's easy. The gear's heavy. Catching them, you got to go. You got to do so much to catch a beaver. They're heavy when you got to haul them out. Skinning them is horrible. Fleshing them, there's nothing fun about beaver. Beavers work all the way around from the time you decide, hey, I'm going to go catch beaver. You just committed yourself to all kinds of work. Well, these. These southern mink are not far from it because you're going to put in the the walking, and you know, granted the traps aren't heavy and they're not all that hard to skin, but once you get your process down, but on the flesh and being mine, those mink will wear you out. There's a lot of work in them, um, but my put up must be pretty good because my grade was excellent on the mink, and um, like I say, it's just work all the way around. But I was I was excited. That's a milestone. I mean, I don't know if I'll be able to, to, to break that. 200 mink was crazy. 212 was... Could you have ran 60, 80, or 100 traps? I don't think so. I really don't. Just I because mean, of the... Just because of that. If I'd have had 10 more traps, they'd have probably stayed on the bike. I mean, it was everything I could do to get 48 out. And there were times when I didn't have 48 out. I was probably running for probably the better part of a week. I only had 30 out. You know, I just... It's just so labor-intensive. You just, you know, maybe if you put in some two hours before daylight and an hour after dark, I'm not saying you couldn't do it. Somebody could get it done. It's just not feasible. It's just, it's a lot of work. And if you're pulling, like if you're in the middle of a multi-species line and you end up with three otter in a day and 10 or 12 coon and a half a dozen mink, you got a lot of work when you get back to the shed. If you bite, if you just use skin and flesh and boarding, uh, during that big mink push, I was putting everything in the freezer. I just couldn't keep up. 18 mink. Um, I had a day I had 8 otter, 18 mink, and almost 20 coon. That was the biggest day I had. But, I mean, you can't get up till my morning and go trapping. You can go up all night skinning, mm -hmm. just skinning, even with the skinning machine. You know, I, I'm not a speed skinner, but I get it done pretty quick and it still takes a lot of time. I mean, um, so how, what are you, how are you stabilizing your, because this is just like open grass. This is open grass, open levees. I'm, you know, we tried it all. We tried every kind of baited set you can imagine. It's just, there's too much food down there. So we had to go with an all blind set uh, approach. And two, three years ago, we came up with the, hey, how are we gonna stabilize these traps? They're knocking the traps, they're running them over, they, you know. So I tried every stabilizer out there. I built some little mini uh, stabilizer type stabilizers. Mm -hmm. uh, tried the, Connie brackets. I tried just about everything, and then the best thing I've come up with is just a straight H stand, short, not long handled. I'm not going underwater. Most of my sets are on land. Uh, believe it or not, it seems like the farther away I get from the water, the larger the mink get. The big males run a little bit closer than the females, but they're not right on the edge of the water. They're, you know, they're definitely up on dry land, and and 
Now these, does someone make a little bitty eight stand for a one? They do, and you have to be careful because the the typical one ten is measured on the outside. The BMI is, is measured on the inside, so the BMI is actually a little bit bigger than your standard 110. So if you buy standard 110 brackets or H stands, you have to do some bending on them to get them to fit snug. Um, but I found I found some H stands, single uh, crossbar H stands that work perfect with the BMIs. Ordered four dozen, one for each trap. This is serious. I said, <laughs> I found the one that works, this is it. Get rid of everything else that doesn't work. I, and I had every gimmick, meat stabilizing gimmick out there. Tried everything in the book. Basic 10 inch tall H stand worked perfect. So um, I was using the BMI traps. They got eight to 10 inches of chain with a ring on it. I'd slide the ring over the leg of the H stand, stick it in the dirt, put the trap on it, and brush it over. The key is finding the trails. That's the, the setting of the trap. I mean, you can teach a monkey to do this, but you gotta find the trails. And it's a, there's a learning curve there that's pretty pretty sharp, because you've got a lot of trails around these ponds, because everything's used to ponds to eat. How you, how you picking your mink trail out? The differentiation between the mink trail and everything else is the mink trails don't have mud in them. That makes sense to you? Mm -hmm. Every other trail, the the animal is heavy enough to mat the grass down to the dirt. And eventually that mud shows up through the dirt. They get a little bit of mud on their footprint, they stepping over the dirt. You can see a line of dirt, mud. You can see a difference between just grass and grass with dirt on it. Mm -hmm. The trails that didn't have any dirt on them, the mink weren't heavy enough to mat that grass down into the mud. They just lay in the grass over and going right over the top of it, almost like carpet. Whereas your coon trails, your possum trails, your otter, beaver, the heavier animals, once that grass gets matted a few times and they go over it two or three times, they start wearing it into the dirt and they have a defined line of dirt down that trail. What about squirrels and rabbits? Caught a bunch of them. A bunch of fox squirrels in the, in the mink runs. Um, why they're running around the crawfish field, I have no idea. Quite a few rabbits, not, I mean, I don't, maybe 10 rabbits a season, but, you know, made good dinner. We ate, <laughs> ate a lot of rabbits. All good eating. Oh, yeah. Um, but that was the difference. That After all the searching I did, and I, I, I set a lot of wrong trails last year. Which are blowing your traps over. Yeah, you walk up and your trap's laying there. Still, you know, a, a raccoon went over the top of it, an otter blew over the top of it. Um, and that, that was real quick, okay, this, trail caught, I mean, this trail got knocked over by something a lot bigger than I mean. How can I figure out what's the difference between the two? And that's what it was. The defined mink trail didn't have any dirt on it because the mink wasn't heavy enough to mat that grass. The other trails, that was it. Now, that's not to say that the mink don't use the other trails. Those just weren't mink only trails. Mm -hmm. So I was still setting both. But my trap preference, if I got three traps and I got three trails, I'm going to make doggone sure I'm setting the trails that I'm 90% sure are just mink first. And then the other trails, I would try to find a way to get the bigger animals to go over that trap without tripping it. Put a stick over it, put something heavier over it where they wouldn't just blow over the trap. So you had to carry that with you out on those levees, didn't you? There's, there's nothing out there. No. You got to, I mean, they get grass and that's it. You want something heavier than grass, you better have some side cutters on you and go cut something, a pair of loppers and bring some sticks with you because there's nothing. Um, 
because I was having so much problem with bigger animals knocking traps over, I said, well, this doesn't make any sense. Not only did I not catch a mink, but I didn't catch whatever knocked the trap over either. I should have caught both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a little learning curve. You knock yourself in the head, should have had a V8 moment, you know, and just like, duh. And it hits you just like that one. It day. does. Yeah. You're thinking, this is, I'm glad there's nobody standing here because there's somebody a hell of a lot less intelligent than me that would have figured this out probably a little bit quicker, you know? And I'm kind of looking around making sure nobody's watching. You go back to the truck, you get a 330, a 220, a 280, whatever you got. You go down the trail a little bit, you you gang set that in order of size, you know? You set the biggest trap first. You get, you know, I'm trying to get these animals out of the way. I want to catch the mink. I got a goal here. I don't mind catching a coon, but doggone it, I want to catch that mink. So the the trails that didn't have any dirt, that were defined runs, I could attribute almost all of the time that was going to be the mink trail. And like I said, that was just a, after a lot of times having traps knocked over, I figured out real quick, okay, I caught a mink there, there's no dirt in this trail, that is the defining factor. And it proved true time and time and time again over the course of the season. So. That was a huge revelation over last year. Last year, there was traps knocked over every single day, and you can imagine how frustrating that is. With your personality? Yeah. And I mean, just think yourself, how many times have you had a coyote dig up a trap? The trap's flipped over laying there, you know, unfired. There's nothing in the trap, obviously. He's still running around there flipping the rest of your traps. It's just, ugh, you know, you grit your teeth and you think, I've got to figure this out. And like I said, when you, when you do figure it out, I was like, man, that should have happened like three days ago. So that was a little learning curve, and it, you know that was probably one of the biggest revelations of the season was definitively figuring out the mink-only trails and using that to my advantage. Now, once you find a mink-only trail, especially during the during the what I call the rut on the meat run, you've got to gang set those trails because the the male mink's not chasing himself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, good point. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, He's not chasing himself, so you're either going to catch what he's chasing and miss him, or vice versa. So gang setting became pretty, pretty important, pretty quick. And there was a lot of times I catch the female and the male in the same run, or I catch a female and two males in the same run. And there were days that I had three or four mink caught in the same run within 20 yards. And um, based on just based on numbers, um, it was eight to two male over female at the end of the season. And on, on those grassy trails. Right. Oh, just the population in over my entire sample of 212 mink, there were 80% males. Okay. To 20%. Eight out of 10 were males. Two out of 10 were females. So we had a lot higher population of males during that, during that rut phase. I was catching a lot more males than I was females. I don't think I was missing females because the ones that I caught, I caught. Not like I suitcased them or they made it happen. They they were caught just as well as the rest of them. So I don't think the, the females were getting through the traps. I just don't think we have as many females as we do males. Right, let me go back to this because the way you explain it, I'm not sure. I, I think I know what you're saying. So when I go snaring on a riverbank, mm -hmm. okay, I'm always cat orientated. So first snares I put on the outside are coyote snares are 12 inches off the ground. Mm -hmm. Coon's gonna walk under that, and the red fox is gonna walk under that. Then I go down that trail, then I own them. I will put two, probably eight by eight inch 
to catch the the coons and the fox mm -hmm. and in the middle I've got my two cat snares yep so what you're doing is you're putting your bigger traps like three, 330s 280s 220s yep and you're leaving because your cat's the mink Right. You're putting your 110s in the middle and you're guarding your 110 with the bigger stuff on exactly. the outside. Okay. So that the 110s don't get run over. I'm guarding them with the bigger traps on the outside or snares. Or, for instance, on a good crossover coming up, I'm going to have a number 5 or a 750 on a drowner at the water. Mm -hmm. No way a mink's going to trip that trap. Paying attention is hot enough. The hotter the beaver, they're going to smoke that front foot catch. They're going to be at the bottom of the drowner foot up that run, I'm gonna have a 330. Mink's gonna go right under, because I put my 330s about two inches off the ground. You know, you've said it many- Even for beaver? Yeah, even for beaver, I put about two inches off the ground. Your, you've said it many times, your, your, your Connie Bear is just a modified snare, it's just a mechanical snare. So you're setting for the same head catch, if you would, uh, on the dry land trail. So I set my 330s about inch and a half to two inches off the ground, My 220s for coon, I'm setting four inches off on a butterfly stabilizer, excuse me, dragonfly stabilizer. So I get that sideways profile. Uh, I don't have anything underneath so the coon can actually see underneath the, the trap. So there's no stabilizer directly beneath the trap. It's up on the side. So yeah, I'm gonna be drowner at water, 330 up in the 220 and then my 110 or snare for me. Uh, I tried snares a couple of times, I'm not good at it but I'm gonna get a lot better at it because you can carry a whole lot of snares in a fanny pack <laughs> and go run down the levee and set them. So I was talking to Newt and I gotta figure the snares out because if, you, if you've got that number of mink, you should be able to snare mink and it's, it's very gonna, efficient. If you're gonna play with the, the, the mink, <clears throat> play with a little system for me. You know, you're telling me you found a 3 8 inch fiberglass. Right. Make them about two feet long, cut them. Mm -hmm. Go down to the hardware store, and I don't know what size conduit's gonna fit that because right. I, I don't know if they make something smaller than half inch. If you if you make a miniature kill pole right. out of that fiberglass, you could carry 12 in your hand. Exactly. Just push it in, open the loop, push it in, open the loop, push that's it what in. I, that's what I wanna get to because it's a, you know, even with what I was doing, it becomes labor intensive just setting a mink trap. I mean, you know, it's just a 110 and a stabilizer. Yeah, but it's, you know, if you can cut your set time in half, like we were saying, how, how often did I have all 48 traps out? Could I have set 100? The answer was no. If I could speed up just a little bit, I could. Yeah, maybe I can get 20 more out. That 20 is, is big. You can get 20 more sets out, that's, that's huge. Uh, logistically, it's just, it's tough. I mean, you know, when you're making, when you're having to travel that far in between farms and, and studying, you know, you're not just one after the other. But like you said, that might be the way to do it. Miniature kill poles on the snare, stick it in, open the loop. <laughs> stick it in, open the loop, you know. I like that. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that. I played around with. I've done a little bit of that, and it meat's always been one of them things to me. I'll just get a, and probably after this interview, because I we had some guys down from Illinois. We found some mink signing like under three bridges in a row. Yeah. So that got my brain going. Now we're doing this interview. Now it's going again. And There's I, nothing like it. I get a little a little hair, and I go. I'm gonna go mink trapping. Yeah. And I go out and I'll end up catching eight or 10 or 12 and I'm like, that's cool. Next. Yeah. Next, yeah. You know, you, the, you look at the guys that put up big numbers of coon, the road trappers, 
and they catching mink, they don't want to start dancing out there in their waders. <laughs> you know, they, they pull that, that trap up out of the water and expecting to have a coon and there's a mink. And it's kind of like a little, you know, it used to be a big payday. Mm-hmm. Now it's just kind of a, it's a special thing. You know, I got addicted to mink. I got addicted to putting up mink, to skinning mink, to seeing how efficient I could get skinning them and putting them up and how, I mean, how many different ways I could present that mink to a grader. What's, what did I think looked the best? Uh, you know, you, once you get it in your head that this is what you want to do, I want to catch mink, you want to do the very best you can. How did you make a mink look better than just a mink? Well, I looked at all the, number one, we've got to, we've got to flush them all the way off. So you're doing yourself a bit of an adjustment you do that because you reveal every imperfection in the leather. When you can leave the saddle on, they can't see through it. Mm-hmm. It's a red mem- membrane. You, you're... That's not to say that the, the leather won't be perfect if you do take the saddle off, some of them are. But the majority of ours are very imperfect because they have a lot of tick bites. You know, that, it, I didn't believe it when I read it years ago that mink were you know, notorious for living most of their life on land, very little in the water. But our, tick, our, our mink are covered in ticks. I've seen mink with 20 or 30 ticks on them between the head and the front legs. They're just covered in ticks. So the grading, uh, my grading is just nothing but tick marks, tick marks, tick marks. And I know that by having to flesh them all the way off that I'm revealing that. So I, um, I took note that when skinning and fleshing mink especially, if you can do them fresh, they look a lot better than even three days in the freezer. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because of the amount of fat and maybe the fat freezes a little bit slower than the pelt. I don't know what it is, but there's something about it. A mink that's been in the freezer even as little as a week that's fleshed to the point that I have to flush them down to the leather, almost has a yellow, almost a stale tint, like you would have kept kept the mink over for a year. But it's you know it's only been in the freezer for a week, so I got to the point where I was more willing to freeze otter, coon, beaver, and everything else whole to spend my time taking the mink all the way through the process in one day and come back this weekend and skin the rest of the critters that I caught. So. I found myself wanting to spend as much time as I could on the mink, even though I was probably uh, doing the other animals a little bit of an injustice because it would force me to rush through them later. But spend as much time as I could getting the mink done as quickly as possible, as fresh as possible, to try to make them look as good as possible. Um, pulling as much fur around the back, the legs and everything, pushing as much fur into that window as I could. Um, I used a lot of borax. I borax that every single pelt, just like I would a, a, a high dollar cat. Skin side? First side. Okay. First side. Okay. <clears throat> Before they went on the board. I let that borax in that fur for the four, five, six, seven days that those animals were drying. And when I took them off, I blew that borax out, borax them one more time, and brushed, it, brushed every one of those mink with a hairbrush. And I mean, they were gorgeous. And they were beautiful. They really, really looked, I mean, they looked as good as they did when the animal was live. I and mean, they looked fantastic. And, you know, I, I did 20 or 30 like that. And I did 20 or 30 like I would normally just on the board, off the board. And it was just matted, looked like old, mm-hmm. rough looking carpet. And the other ones just looked brand new. So, and I know that helped on the grade because the grade was really good. So, you know, it's one of those things you, you, you get to a point in the season where you know you can't spend that much time on every animal you never get through. Well, for, for newer guys, when you're saying you're pushing that fur to the window, it kind of explain what you mean by that. 
the preferred method for, for uh, boarding a mink would be to bring the legs to the back. The back legs to the, to the same side of the board as the tail and leave your window open in the front. On a male mink, I uh, begin my window just about uh, uh, your little finger width below the penis hole and make a window all the way down to the top of the back legs. And on the female, I just bring it up about the same amount just to give them a good window. And everything else, as much as I can, I pull to the back and, and bunch it up right around the base of the tail. I switch from, from um, thumbtacks to staples. I can use that staple gun, if you've ever seen an electric staple gun, you can push that staple gun down and push the fur mm. into the center and staple with that fur intention. And you can do that from both sides. So instead of having to squeeze it with your finger and try to do it, you just use the staple gun to push the fur to the middle staple one time, push the fur to the middle staple one time, and then I'll, I use cardboard for my tails. Right down the tail, staple, 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 three staples down the tail, and that was it. I mean, it was, it was a lot faster than 17 pins is what I would average, 17 thumb tacks. Uh, I went from five minutes of tacking so literally less than a minute tacking them out. And when they dried, they almost dried flat. Even though when you bunch it up, you, you look like you've got a you know a small ball sitting up underneath there. You, you can tell you've pushed all this fur up. But when it dried, it dried nice and flat. But the amount of fur that was in that window was just awesome. When you flip them over, it's like, man, it was you know just a ton of fur in the window. So you know that's going to help you grade. It's, it has to. And the density of the fur is, is intense when you do that. I've never thought about using borax on a mink. Yes, man, you talk about, you know, a mink is a, is a, is a clean animal. If you catch one live and he's on, you know, especially in a county bear because you don't have any blood, you look at him, you think he's pretty clean. You go hose him out. You know, you look at him and like, man, I don't have to do anything with this. But take that over and hose it out and watch the color of that water. Or go put him in a bucket of water. There's a lot more, you know, the, the water that he's in is so muddy or silty or tainted that you don't realize how much silt and sediment and everything is actually caught up in the in the very under fur. The outside fur looks great because when they shake like a dog would shake, when a mink shakes off out of the water, they throw the outside water or they've got their mink oil on the fur that you, that you don't realize how much is embedded underneath. Makes and, sense. Yeah, so I, every animal got washed, whether it was dry or not, whether it was bloody or not, every animal got washed and dried. Um, I wash them before I skin them, skin them, and then pop them out three or four real good times. And normally, within 20 minutes, they're drying. They're kind of like a muskrat; they dry quickly. But um, I wouldn't have thought that there was that much concern with washing a mink because I mean they just don't look that dirty. But there's a lot. Of, just the, the the water that they're coming out of is always dirty. Now some of these streams up here are crystal clear. I can imagine that might be a little bit different. But in the crawfish ponds, it's just muddy river water. So when you're washing it. You don't you don't feel like you lose any of the sheen on the fur. I don't think so. And if I do, I think it go. I think the borax brings what's left back, and that may be why the borax makes it look so good. Is because whatever sheen you may be knocking off, it's bringing. You know, you have noticed you put borax in there, and it comes out. It's it's not clumpy, but it's got a lot thicker texture to it. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's picking up a lot of that oil and bringing it back out. I think there's a lot more oil in the under fur than, than we think there is. Because when you really get scrub that borax down in there, it comes back and it's got a it's got a consistency to it like you would have used some oil absorbent and you garage. It's it's a lot thicker. It's picked up a lot. And uh, I know the borax made a big difference on the mink. I did my mink, my coon, my otter, and my cats, all with borax this year, and all of my fur graded higher than it ever has. 
I'm trapping the same animals from the same ponds and the same farms I always have. You got a top lot from Louisiana that graded, would you say, semi? Western semi. Went Western semi, we obviously are very central. I mean, I'm on the Gulf of Mexico. You can't go any farther south than, than just about than I am in Louisiana. And I did not have a single, this is the first time, let me clarify, this is the first year that I haven't had coon grade central. Everything I sent graded Western semi. And I attribute that to having such good looking fur. And I attribute that to the borax. I mean, I boraxed every coon. And normally, I'll get a few Western semi and most of them are central. I, not, I did not have one single central. I set over 100, 160 coon up. <clears throat> Everything was western semi. I had an eastern semi. I had some western northern. From Louisiana. Some serious grades. Wow. Louisiana. What was your average size on coon? Um, 1X, 2X. You know, uh, this is the first time I've ever caught a 5X coon in Louisiana. I had two coon this year. One stretched 38 and a half inches on an eight inch outer board and the other one stretched 39 inches on an 8-inch outer board. I didn't have a coon board big enough to stretch them. I'm surprised that wasn't in the paper. That was enormous. <laughs> I mean, I got, I have pictures of them hanging in the first shed, a 42-inch otter on an 8-inch board, and a 38-and-a-half-inch coon on an 8-inch board, and you'd swear it's an otter with the wrong tail. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, I understand these guys, and they catch them all the time, 4, 5, 6 XL. You don't see that in Louisiana. No. A 3 XL is a big boar. 2XL is what we're going to, you know, consider all our males. Large to extra large, all the females. Uh, it was unreal. I caught two of them this year from the same pond that were that big. And both of those uh, graded very high. The one that I top lotted was a 3X, 4X uh, Western Semi. And um, oddly enough, it was a 3-5 color. I probably didn't say much for the coon market this year, but I don't care. <laughs> I got a top lot, and <laughs> you know how that goes. You get your first top lot, it gets, it gets, you know, like I told you, I attribute that just like killing your first banded duck. If you ever get a chance to do it, which is once in a lifetime for a lot of people, and not ever for most people, a top lot to me is just saying I may never get another one. I could get one next year, but the possibility is just that that's the only one I'll ever get, and I'll be okay with that. Are you, you doing like I've seen a lot of Louisiana people do where they're using the little rubber bands on the front legs? <clears throat> I am. I use the rubber bands on, um, I use it on otter, I use it on mink, I use it on raccoon. Uh, every one of them. I like the consistency, I like the way it looks. Um, and it's, a, it's just appearance. There's no, there's no real good reason for it. Do you have to do it? No. You can cut your legs off and leave the big holes. I really, really like the way it looks, and it's a—it's literally 10 seconds. It takes 10 seconds to do. It's so clean. Another reason I like it is when you stack your fur, it lays flat. You don't have arms sticking out. Um, I don't like an arm hole. This is the first year I, I put all of my coons on wood. So for years I've been stretching on wire. Uh, finally got talked sense into me and switched to wood, and of course my my size increased by a size on everything. Grade increased, but I also have the opportunity, if I do want to cut the legs off, I can pin them shut on the wood, where I couldn't do that on the on the wire. So when I was using wire, I got used to using the rubber bands on the front legs, and I just continued. You to want to describe that for some of the Yeah, when, when, when I skin, when I'm skinning a coon out, we pull the front legs all the way down to the wrist and cut them off. So you've got a long front leg left on the pelt. 
So when you're flushing, you've got to do a solid two and a half, three inch front leg hanging on your on your pelt. <clears throat> when the animal goes on the board, that um, that leg is drawn up tight and a rubber band wrapped around your hand four or five times is slipped over it and creates a very, very constricted area at the pelt where the arm would meet the pelt. After about two days of drying, I take a pair of side cutters and just cut through that rubber band and it leaves what appears like just a nipple hole mm -hmm. on the pelt. Instead of a big hole or a short cutoff leg, you've got just this very, it almost looks like a balloon knot cut very short. It's, you know, it's, it's constricted where you can see the pelt was pulled together and it's just one little bitty pinhole is all that's left when you cut it off. Very clean, it's very consistent looking. When you double bag a fur out, they all look the same. You don't have all these different size leg holes cut, which, you know, as the pelt's drying, you don't have any control over how big that leg hole is gonna get. Mm -hmm. And that drives me crazy on otter. You think you cut them both perfectly and then you pull them off the board, you got one that's an inch and a half long, one is two inches long, and it just, it doesn't, <laughs> I don't like inconsistency on fur handling. I like them all to look exactly the same, like little soldiers. And when you do it that way, they all look exactly the same. And so I did that and I like the way it looks. Apparently the greater, he either likes it or doesn't care. I don't know, but I'd like to think that it matters. Because it looks good. Yeah, well I think, I mean, if you ever, I mean, I know you probably have, but like, you sell fur to, say, Grinwalds. Mm -hmm. He can have a conversation with you and be halfway looking at the fur in between feeling when he picks the pelt up, touches the fur, looking at you, looking at it. It's literally graded, 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 two seconds. graded. And, and to me, if, it, if, you're, if his brain picks up on nice, 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 exactly. it's easier to go on that other pile. Right. I think you're right. I think it's, you know, I, I kind of attribute that same thing with, with uh, Coon on board. When they're used to seeing that perfectly square skirt across the base of that tail, and they're flipping, 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 and all of a sudden they grab one that was on wire and they got a big V on the back of that pelt, mm -hmm. they notice it quick, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. They're flipping through, they're flipping Which through wire handle. more now because everybody's using wood. Well, a lot of people are, are using wood. wood, right? And, you know, I, I think. I think you need to get ground graded a lot quicker for an inconsistent pelt than you would for where they can just start counting noses because they can see, man, these there's a hundred pelts here and they're all exactly the same. Boom, 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 boom. And then, you know, I think you get, I don't know if you get a better grade, but I think you get a, a, a more consistent grade. I think they're more apt to grade the fur quality than dock you for an imperfection in the pelt when they all look exactly the same. And like I said, there may be nothing to it, but it's 10 seconds, I don't mind spinning. And I think it really, really, really dresses up the look of the pelt. Well, let me ask you this. Where you're at is humid mm -hmm. year round. Mm -hmm. And when being in Tennessee, you know, especially back when all that the Nino stuff was going on in the 90s, and you know, we, we could almost grow a garden in February sometimes, sure. it got so warm, and it was always wet. I was having nightmarish problems with mold. How are you dealing yep. that with with your fur down there all the time? And it, it's it, there are times when it gets it gets hard to deal with. Um, one thing I don't do is I don't compromise the pelt by pulling it off the board early. The problem with pulling a you know, it's, it's dry enough, that mentality, if, it, if you're saying it's dry enough, then that means it's not dry. <laughs> it's either dry or it's not. 
they're not dry enough. You know, you, Pregnant you, or not. Yeah, you say that about blue jeans. They're dry enough. That they'll finish drying while you wear them to work. That's one thing. But when you're talking about fur, it's either dry or it isn't. I don't pull anything off the board unless it is dry. Because when you throw it in that stack, if it's not dry, you know what happens with dry fur. If it's in the least bit not dry, you're going to have huge problems. <clears throat> so one thing I do to combat it, I don't pull anything off the board unless it is 100% dry. I try to keep the humidity in my drying room down without overheating, which is a real big problem down there because you can't leave a heater on all the time. And from one day to the next, the humidity might jump from 100% to 50% back and forth. Um, which is probably low. <clears throat> oh yeah, 50% very low for us to be very dry. Um, in fleshing, especially coon, I try to get as much grease out of there as I can. I mean, fleshing is very, very important. If you leave anything on there, you're asking for huge, huge problems. So taking the extra time to make sure that the, the skirt of all your pelts is very well fleshed. The underarms are very well fleshed. Um, the heads, you know, everybody says, oh, they don't buy heads. No, but a head will ruin your pelt if it rots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't like, you know, I've watched a lot of fleshing and handling videos. I don't like them to say, you don't have to worry about anything from the ears to the lip. Ah, that's a crock. You better worry about it. Well, especially where you're at. Yeah, because that's going to take twice as long to dry if you don't do anything about it. So even if you just take your knife and trim it up by hand a little bit, take a pair of catfish pliers, grab what you can, get the big stuff off, get some of that cartilage out of, out of the ears, help it dry. The truth is, yeah, they don't buy heads. But that head is still part of that pelt. And it's still part of the grading process if it ends up tainting the rest of your batch. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important to make sure that even though they don't buy heads, that you make sure you get the, the meat off of it. Um, you get people, oh man, I spray mine down with WD-40. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I prefer wiping down with a little out rubbing alcohol to kill the bacteria. So I use, uh, I use lacquer thinner. That, yeah, same situation. Something's going to evaporate quickly. Mm -hmm. um, What's the, I, I, didn't, I never heard of the WD-40. Oh yeah, I've heard many, many people spraying their beaver leather with WD-40. For? To kill the, to kill the mold. Uh, it, it puts an oil sheen over it that the mold can't live in. Okay. So it makes sense, but you also add, depending on how you stack in your pelt, you end up getting WD-40 over it. And I think the grader is going to pull this up and say, man, it smells like in my grandpa's workshop here, what's going on? So you open yourself to scrutiny that you really don't need. It's like, man, we open this bag and smell, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it smells like a mechanic shop in here. So uh, I use rubbing alcohol in a spray bottle with a little bit of glycerin. Shake it up real good and it, it separates. It looks like you know Italian dressing. You got to shake it every time you use it. A um, little bit of glycerin and a whole lot of alcohol, and I spray them down and wipe them off. And I don't worry about wasting paper towels. I wipe a pelt down. I throw the paper towel away. I don't want to, you know, mold spreads quickly. So I don't want to take mold from one pelt and move it to another one. So as I'm wiping down pelts, I use a separate paper towel. I use shop towels, the blue ones. Buy them during the off season when they go on sale at you know auto parts store. Buy three or four rolls at a time. I use one per pelt when I'm wiping them down because I don't want to transfer bacteria or mold from one pelt to the other, which is easy to do. Wipe them down real good with the alcohol solution. I don't have any problem after that. I really don't. The alcohol works great. Kills it, cleans it, and um, I usually just do it once. I take them off the board. They may sit in the first shed three or four days. If I know we got a couple bad days going, I go in there and wipe them down. And I knock on wood this year, I didn't have any problems. And they all stayed, my 
my version is far from climate controlled. You know, it's uh, it's actually controlled by the climate. <laughs> that's that's mm-hmm. how my first jet exists. Uh, well, I mean, like, this, when I came back from Alaska, I was I was putting up for my dad's barn, mm-hmm. just a barn, horse barn. Huh, that's basically what I have. And um, I'll never forget. I had like it was close to 300 beaver it was two days before the auction i'm all excited to get my five dollars a beaver and i start putting them things in bags and i i don't know anything about mushrooms but i believe i had enough to eat <laughs> growing on you and, and they were growing in on the beaver and i was like oh my god i know what to do i called somebody they said use vinegar the same thing you're saying about right. the wd-40 it reaped a vinegar, vinegar when I took it to the sale, and all those old fur buyers were like going, "What is that? All What's about? he hiding?" Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Um, I threw a couple things down here. We talked about the order of the gang set, the size of the traps, and what direction we were going in. Um, a couple of things that I did different this year that I, I wrote down just to try to make sure we threw in here is I made a point not to walk up to any set that was at the water from land. I approach every set from the water. I hit the water 10-15 yards from the set and walk the water down to try to keep the scent down as much as possible. And I found that that made a big, big difference. Um, For everything? For everything. As many sets as I had the ability to approach from the water without putting my foot on dry ground anywhere near that set, that's what I did. And I think that made a big difference. These animals are used to four-wheeler driving around. They're used to trucks driving around. They're not used to human beings walking through four feet of grass and leaving all kinds of scent around where they live. I mean, I know that from deer hunting. I know that from everything else. I don't know why I wasn't applying it more, but this year I made it a point to approach as many sets from the water as I could. If not, I wore hip boots every day, if not chest waders, every day this season. Uh, Bought seat covers for my truck, and I wore chest waders the majority of the season. And if I'm kneeling down at a set, I'm kneeling down with hip boots or chest waders on to try to keep, try to mitigate the scent. You know, it's hot down there. We sweat. You know how it is. Texas, I mean, Louisiana, it's, it's, you're going to sweat. You got scent. I mean, you're leaving scent everywhere. And I did that as a way to try to mitigate the scent. And I think it made a big difference. I know it didn't hurt at all. Well, it can't hurt. As well. Do you think some of that would be, especially on your otter and stuff or even mink? less disturbance on the bank that was my next point is i've found over the last couple of years i'm walking parallel to a trail that i've got a set on the next thing i know the animals are using my trail instead of theirs because i'm like i mean i've had a trap here i know i should have caught them i moved the trap to the trail that i was walking in and bam catch the coon the next morning yeah my trail is bigger. It's easier to walk down. Mm-hmm. I found the animals started using my trail instead of theirs. I don't want to give them the opportunity to change their consistent behavior. Animals like you know are their creatures of habit. They run down that same trail every single day until you give them another trail to run down by making your own. Um, a lot of the levees that we have that are just big enough to get a four-wheeler down, you drive a four-wheeler down you just made two brand new trails down the middle of that levee with tires and they will start using them immediately because there's nothing in the way. It's a lot mm-hmm. easier to run down your tire trail than it is to go up and over all them sticks and brush and debris that they've had to go over the whole time. So that made somewhat of a difference. I did it, it worked, I'm gonna continue to do it. I'm sure it'll continue to work. Um, 
for people that have the resources, <clears throat> I made the switch this year from a four-wheeler to a side-by-side. And we're lazy as a <laughs> as human beings. We allow ourselves to be lazy when we want to be. And <clears throat> on a four-wheeler, I was so limited by the number of traps I could carry, the amount of equipment I could carry, the number of animals I could carry back and forth, that I would get somewhere and say, man, if I had a 330 right here, I know I could catch an hour. But I'm not going to go three miles all the way back to the truck, get a 330, drive all the way back down there to put it. That side by side, I got everything I need with me. Mm-hmm. I should have done it years ago. And the point being is if, if you're going to be serious about trapping, you need to be serious about your equipment, be serious about the equipment that you have. You know, it's not always the, that you can have a vehicle that's going to work for hunting, fishing, deer hunting, and trapping. Sometimes you have to have a specialized mm-hmm. truck. You have to have a specialized whatever you need a special boat to get where you're going and that side by side has proved in value to me there's just no way i could have carried the equipment like i i did this year on a four-wheeler so that big switch while it was a financial investment it's one that will definitely pay for itself over the next five years so that was pretty good uh, i love this you brought notes <clears throat> I do, no, I made no some, one's ever brought notes look, these are from february 3rd at 7:55 p.m i started making these notes because I knew I was coming here. <laughs> February 3rd, 7.55. Anybody else I interview, pay attention to this. <laughs> well, this is the third time. This is a, this has been a three-year learning curve, so don't think I just, this shit was by happenstance. This is by sitting here looking at each other and saying, what are we gonna say next, right? I don't think we're running out. Because that didn't happen, did it? No. <laughs> no, that didn't happen either. So, um, another note I made was, you know, for the better part of seven years, I've trapped the same farms. I've added a few, but my core farms have been the same farms. I hit that farm on day one, I already know where every set's going. That's the biggest mistake I have ever made. And this year I changed that. I could take you an aerial photo of any farm and I could draw you an X on everywhere I've set a trap the last three or four years. Things change. And the first morning of trapping season, I'm going to take that map and go make a set on every one of those X's and go to the next farm. Big mistake. Things change. Sometimes they don't change enough for you to notice. It's not it's not a drastic enough change where you say, whoa, there's a new crossover. Or hey, there's a new beaver dam. Those are the easy ones to see. Those are the ones where, I mean that's a no-brainer. Hey, there's a muskrat hut over there that wasn't there last year. I better go set a trap. That's the easy ones. It's the ones where you don't take the time to get on your hands and knees to go walk down the middle of that ditch, go walk out in the middle of that pond and fall into a beaver run that you never knew existed mm-hmm. because you've been on this farm for five years. Changing that mindset undoubtedly put more fur in the truck because on farms that I've normally set 10 traps on and left, I was putting 30 traps out and I never knew there were that many places to put traps. And I've walked this farm 10 times. It changes every year. The farms may not change, but the animals do change. You're not trapping the same animals you trapped last year. You already caught those. Mm-hmm. Another one of those moments where I was like, man, what are you thinking? You can't trap the animals you caught last year. You already sold those. These are new animals. And while the nature of the animal is typically the same, most of the beaver are going to follow the same runs. Most of the otter are going to use the same crossover. The key word was most, not all of them are. And you got to get out there and put the time in doing your scouting, whether it's early season or during the season, you got to go look for the new sign. 
And so I made the note to set on, set not on sign, but set on new sign every time. If you've got a place where you've consistently caught a red fox for the last 10 years, by all means, put a trap there. Mm-hmm. But make sure they got fresh sign there as well. And make sure you walk 10 feet both directions. See if maybe the trails move. Maybe there's, you know, maybe, you know, you walk up the trail 30 yards and all of a sudden you see a, an oak tree fell during the summer. And they've moved their trail 30 yards and you didn't even know it because the old trail's still there. They're just not using it anymore. So that was a, a big note. I mean, I get bold face, italicized, underlined. So I thought it was pretty important that you don't get complacent and fall into the, I'm just going to go set the same 15 spots I always set. And you're going to probably catch enough fur to keep you doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you brought that up. This year in Texas, we, we had a sucky season. I mean, there's there's no way to even try to hide that. Mm-hmm. And we figured out the coyotes were acting more like cats because they were getting so much pressure <clears throat> from guns. Right. So we started finding coyote tracks in these draws that are really, really rough with cactus and stuff like that that you wouldn't necessarily think about it. So I went back to the the main lodge. I've been trapping there now for like five or six years. On 20,000 acres, I can show, if you gave me a map, I could write you every draw, every rock cross, and where we put traps, where we, just what you're saying. Right. So I go back and I have them pull up the maps and I sit there and I notice on the maps, well that funny looking draw looks different on the map. Well there's one over here, and there's one over there, and there's one over there. So I figure out where they're at and I go look for coyote sign. Sure enough, everyone's got coyote sign. But what amazed me is because I just took this road instead of that road yep. and this left instead of that right, I found all kind of places that, that if there was cats there this year, that was a lot better than I've been trapping. But if I wouldn't, I had to go look for these coyotes. The right. I was looking, I'd have never, never known because they were there. And that's the thing, you know, I, and, and which, what was amazing is I'm going over here looking for beaver sign and I find an untapped mink resource that I didn't know was there. So that was another thing. I'm going down this trail that I've always caught coon on and next thing I know, there's a, a big pile of coyote scat right there in the middle of the trail that I've never even set a coyote trap on this, on this land. Not only are you not catching what you're setting for, you're missing an opportunity to catch another species that you may not even know was available to catch there. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a, there's a lot to be learned there. Whether it's just trying to reestablish a better pattern on the species you're, you're trapping, or whether it's learning that there are other species there that you've never even trapped before and, and tapping into a new resource, there's a lot to be learned by consistently walking into an area like it's the first time you've ever walked in, even if it's been, you know, I get calls from my farmers, they're asking me questions about their own land. I know more about their property than they do. I mean, they're, they're farms that are 1,200 acres that the guy that owns it, there's places on there he's never even been, that I walk all over. You know, so that you, you take for granted you know more about it than you think you do. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just take one good walk through there in the new season, it's like, man, this is a whole new world. And so that was, that was important this year. That was very important, and I plan on, you know, reading through these notes every year. And you know, that's that's another good thing, making notes. I mean, how many people make notes? Seriously, make, you know, not just a, a note of where you caught something or what trap you used to get, but how many people seriously make notes for themselves to go back later and say, this is how I'm going to better myself for next season. I've never done it until this year, and I only did it because of this interview, but. 
there were days I'm driving down the road and something popped in my head and man I scrolled through that iPhone and jotted a note in there and even if it didn't pertain to this it was I got myself into the mentality of thinking write it down mm -hmm. because I can't remember anything write it all down if you don't need it you can always delete it but if you don't write it down you're sure to forget it and so the mink, the mink thing was huge, caught plenty of mink, didn't use a whole lot of traps to do it. Going to try to double that effort next year, got the truck loaded down. Um, I'm sure in the intro you're going to tell them we're all up here in Pennsylvania. And let me tell you, we're in Pennsylvania. That's like a whole other planet. Y'all came up through West Virginia, We right? came up through West Virginia. We 1,200 miles and one-tenth from Louisiana, from my driveway to this day's end we're staying at, 1,200 miles. And the reason we're here is because I, I'm working for the uh, for the NTA. I won't be able to make that in, uh, in the UP. So we always try to hit one or the other. So this was a long haul, but my God, well worth the trip. There's so many trappers in Pennsylvania. The people that I have spoken with and the stories that they have told me are just unreal with the number of people and, and surprisingly how well they all get along. It's just awesome for me. And this, 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 um, this convention is amazing the way they put it together. I mean, everybody come together. This is a this is a huge trapping state. I'm a bit jealous. Did, did you get to meet Oscar Cronk today? No. Oh man, he's wearing an Oscar Cronk hat. Okay. If you if you see him tomorrow, you've got to start a conversation. I'll do it. I guarantee you'll never forget it. Well, I'm I'm jealous of the number of trappers. I wish we had this many trappers down south. I mean, I wish I really wish we do. You know, it's it's. There's sometimes I go weeks and weeks and weeks without running into somebody else, you know. And granted, I'm trapping a lot of private land, but still, the gas station. I mean, these guys see each other in the grocery store. They see they've got a huge community of trappers, and that's important to keep not only keep the tradition alive, but to have somebody. Hey, man, how you doing? What you catching? If you're having a bad week, and you know they can give you a pointer what they're doing different on their line. It's 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 good to have that community, and this these interviews definitely help. I mean, there's so many people listening to these. I get private messages and emails all the time. Hey, I listened to that show you do with Clint. I was a little confused with this. Could you clarify? And I'm, con I mean, literally, probably once or twice a week, I get an email from somebody I've never heard of that's wanting to know something about what we talked about two years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, I, I'm gonna have to go listen to that again and call you back. <laughs> like, I, don't, I forgot what we talked about. But this, um, these interviews are an invaluable resource for um, for new trappers and old trappers alike. It's it's a, it's a big deal. And uh, you, you know, you're offering that service to people. So I mean, I always, at some point in the interview, I tell people, listen to the interview, go back and buy something from the sponsors, mm -hmm. because without that, this wouldn't be available. So whoever sponsored this one, go, <laughs> go make an order well, from it's, them. It's the same ones, and it's uh, if, and I've kind of talked about this before. When when I talk about the help sponsored, I have more of server cost. An internet cost for me to upload this at my house than my house payment. Right, a that's month. Just that's just crazy. Just to, because of the, the 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 data transfer. I mean, if twenty thousand people download this over three days, you'll burn slap burn the server up. Oh yeah, yeah. So we had to go to an unlimited, not like cheap. Glenn Beck style server. Right? Not cheap at all. No, it's a, it's a more my house payment. My wife looks at it every month and just she just looks at you like really. <laughs> I can see her eyes right now. I can see, I can see her looking at you. That's classic. That is classic. So you know, I've got um, I've gotten in pretty pretty good with the um, with the game wardens in my area, and 
by comparison, talking to some of the game wardens up here, the conservation officers up here in Pennsylvania, they, they check so many trappers a season. They, they're very well aware of what's going on. We get new cadets sometimes. They, they've never trapped before. They've never seen an animal trap. And I've got these, um, these enforcement officers come to my first shed and have me basically give a trapping course to their cadets. And it's interesting to hear stories from the veterans of the number of people that are out there that don't have a clue what they're doing, but they're trapping anyway. And I don't understand how this day and age you have people doing that when you have resources like these interviews and the convention we're at. And we try to encourage people to, you know, take advantage of what's out there, learn how to trap effectively, efficiently, and humanely. One big change that we have made this year with Louisiana Trappers Association is we did away with our youth trapping education program. And when I say that, people's eyes get big, oh, you did what? Wait, what are you talking about? Man, that's the, that's the future of trapping. I agree, it is. But it's the wrong demographic. We were reaching out to the youth who have no money, no transportation, no way of making anything that we were teaching them happen. So we did a poll on our website and on our um, open forum, an age poll. What's the average age of the people participating in what we do in the state of Louisiana? And it blew our mind to find out that the average age was over 50. The people that were requesting information from us, trapping knowledge, fur handling knowledge, equipment knowledge, were 50 years old. So we scrapped the youth education program and developed just a trapper's education program reaching out to the age group that's requesting the information and as a result all the kids came with them they brought all their kids we just had our convention in april we had 40 kids under the age of 12 at that convention that did trap setting contests and learned all kinds of new things about trapping and it was because we were just focusing our energy on the wrong demographic <clears throat> we switched that over we started focusing the older group you know there's a there's a huge gap a generation gap in trapping. The fur boom was awesome, then it, it, you know, it fell out, and that whole generation, 10, 15 years of people, just didn't learn how to trap. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that are coming to us now that are retiring and don't have anything to do, but they didn't have it from their fathers. That generation was missing. Mm -hmm. And so they're not in a position to pass it on to their kids. And those are the kids we were reaching out to, and we were missing that whole segment. So we moved things around and we started focusing on that older age group and man, the, the kids that have shown up as a result was awesome. And I'll throw that out there for people that are listening that are in organizations, state trapping organizations, that may be having the same problem or frustrated and haven't realized what we did was that if you bring the dads and the moms, the kids are coming with them. They're coming to convention, they're learning and they're, they're eager to learn but they want to learn at the heels of somebody that can mentor them. Mm -hmm. And if you can get the parents involved, that's what we did, and it, it has made a huge difference. So we charge everybody in our in our group to to put on demos when they come to convention. I did a meat demo, obviously, this year. I mean, Otter, <clears throat> the big Otter demo, and I, I put out some videos. Um, I'm about a step away from doing a DVD, but that's a little bit more than I want to chew on right now, though I think it would be fun to do. I'd love to see your Four or five hundred hours of footage to get 10 minutes of good video. <laughs> I'm a little too spastic for camera. You know? Be, you know, I think people would buy it if we did a 10 minute DVD on mink trapping. I could cover a lot in 10 minutes of footage. 
and a 45 minute blooper section. Yeah, <laughs> I think we would. I think that's how it would end up if we ran all these hours of footage. We'd probably get 10 minutes, 10 minutes of good um, instructional video, and we'd have a ton of bloopers. So I think we may have to do that. Just go with a blooper video. I'm, I'm it would probably be just as educational, a heck of a lot more interesting to watch. The follies of trapping are many. Oh yeah. I know y'all did uh, trapping TV, and I, I can't even imagine the behind the scenes. It, it's it's yeah. <laughs> it's got to be. Well, I mean, a lot. And the problem is a lot of that stuff. You just turn the camera off, and then everything goes sideways and upside down. Yeah. You know, and and everybody looks. It was the camera on. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> you know, it should have been. But it would have been. It'd have been great footage. You know, he's talking about the the trying to get information. I've never told anybody this, and if the guy happens to hear this that I did this to in your state, it was not being meant as a smart aleck. Mm -hmm. I'm trapping up in Winsboro. Okay. And I'm running otter lines. And I go under about every bridge, and he's not setting otter traps. He's setting, I'm assuming, coon traps. Or gray fox, I mean, coon snares or gray fox snares. Mm -hmm. And it was a stick that he would cut, and it was a clothes hanger, like you hang a metal clothes hanger right. that you hang up. And then on the end of that, he had some type of cable, like, you know, literally out of a piano or guitar or something. And then he, he would thread that back and make an open loop, which probably took a long time. And, it, and I guess he would hold some stuff. And so he had he he took the frayed the end of the loop. He wound it back together so he could have a loop to get his loop to go through. Hooked to a clothes hanger. That was a snare. Hook, yeah. And I saw several of them. And you know, and there was burn circles. And if if it was caught or not. After like a week, I'm like, man, I'd like to just you know, I'm giving like 50 snares if I see him. You know, just quit doing that. Yeah. Is it is it is it, is it an income or is it just lack of knowledge? The lack of knowledge. So. But he was running so many snares under these bridges, it couldn't be lack of no. income because yeah. he could he could afford to go all over the place. So finally, I did. I left a dozen snares with my card, and it was either like a Minnesota or a cow's cats video, and I wrote a note on there, you know, not being a smart aleck, but you know, get a hold of me if you'd like to have a little bit better equipment. You know, I'll hook you up with someone that can get a hold of. Never heard nothing back or nothing, you know. But it was picked up. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> snares gone. Star snares and video are yeah. gone. Yeah, and and it was like, man. I mean, but that's frustrating. It is because if if yeah, there there could be some some very negative aspects from doing something like sure. That. You know, the same thing happens to me. I do. You know, most of my work is nuisance work, and I don't. I don't. Even though I have a nuisance permit, I can trap you around. I try not to trap outside of trapping season if possible because I can't do anything with the fur, can't do anything with the meat, you know, you can't do anything with the animals at all. So when I start getting phone calls at the end of October to start catching these coon in the crawfish pond, I try to push them off as long as I can. So I'm like, ah, you know, I'm still vacationing, I'm trying to get kids in school, I'm boat, it's bow season, I gotta get me two or three weeks of bow hunting in before I start trapping. I really try to push them off till trapping season opens. Um, but every once in a while they take it upon themselves well, we'll trap until you get here. <laughs> and the things that I have seen, and you know, it's, it's a lack of knowledge. When you go out there and there's 50 feet of yellow Romex, you know, 
house wire mm -hmm. wrapped around a tree running out to the 330 that's set with the spring stuck in the mud as a stake. <laughs> you know? That's creative. You know? And then there's this yellow piece of wire coming off of it. And there's actually a dead beaver in it. And you're thinking to yourself, if they only knew, how much more efficient would they be? And then you come across that kind of stuff and you just it just amazes you that somebody doesn't know any better, but they just they don't know. And I even think back to when I was just starting traveling. I was lucky enough to have somebody to teach me. But even the stuff that I tried to do on my own, I, I was thirsty for knowledge, but at least I went and looked for it. Mm -hmm. I don't know that some of these people even have the desire to learn it. They think they know. Yeah, yeah. They just don't know how much they don't know. And, it, and it, I think it's a lack of. Um, it's a, it's a. I think I see. How can I say this without saying being arrogant? I think a lot of people have a, a ignorance or arrogance about knowledge. They, they, it's either they, they should just inherit, like all guys think they can shoot, have sex, drive, and start fires. Sure. Most of them can only do really one of those, but they think they can do all of them. And they're not very accurate with any of them. Exactly. <laughs> you know. But I mean, the same with trapping or hunting. I've, I have found one huge, huge problem that I, it's not my problem, it's their problem, but it is a major problem, is I'm young. I mean, I'm 38 years old. Without being condescending, trying to teach somebody at 65 something that they don't know, that I know very well that I'm just about mastered to the point that it's working very consistent for me to try to teach somebody they've got to be humble enough to accept the teaching. Mm -hmm. And there's people have a problem with that in general. People in general have a problem with taking instruction from somebody a lot younger mm -hmm. and I can understand that I mean I don't want a 12 year old coming over here telling me what to do <laughs> I know better but and, and that's you know hopefully by us implementing a trapper's education program and not pointing out just this is just for youth mm -hmm. that it will appeal to more people of different age groups and say hey it's okay for you to come and your son to come and your grandfather to come everybody come over here we're going to teach you all how to do it at the same time you know, because too many times we had, we're teaching the 12 year old and you see the dad back there looking over his shoulder, trying to learn as much as he could. Mm -hmm. And that has, that is a problem, you know, and you know, in, in most of our trapping organizations, state trappers organizations, you look at the, the age of most of its presidents, vice presidents, secretaries, it's an older group. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully like our group has done, we've got a younger generation coming up I and mean, we've got half of our board is under 30 which is good we're trying to get that that younger group in because uh, they have as much to teach as, as they do to learn uh, but like you said it's hard to it's hard not to be arrogant and it's hard not to be condescending but it's hard to see somebody making mistakes and not want to go try to teach them the right way but at the same time they got to want to learn it well we'll close with this and, and I was doing a control job, and I'm not going to say the state. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Louisiana. That's good. And <laughs> it's north of me. That's all I'm going to say. And these guys, we super guys, and they're like, "You're going to set cattle trap?" They're paying me, and I'm like, "Yeah." And they go, "I'm going to go watch you." Okay. So we go out first set. I get out. I pull out the auger. Whoa! I start putting the trap in, and I mean, they're like. 
I'm, I'm getting a little nervous because I feel like one or two is blowing in my ear. I mean, they're that close. I mm -hmm. mean, they're really painted. They want the knowledge. You oh, know, yeah. they're 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 like, and and I put the, I bed the trap and I go sift in the trap and you hear, what's this? What's he doing? What's it? And and I look up and I go, is, is something wrong? <laughs> And they're looking at me like I've done something, you know, and I'm looking down like, did I wire the jaw open somehow or, you know, I actually undo the, take the track back, because I think I did like something, something wrong. stupid. And I'm looking at it and they go, dude, you put it under the dirt. And I go, yeah. And they go, why'd you put that trap under the dirt? I'm like, well, it's for one the animal won't see it. <laughs> And, and then they're like, they it's like serious. a comedy skit. They were serious. Dead serious. like a comedy. There's three of them. And you see them, they're going back and forth, and they're they're looking at me, and, and I'm looking at them, and, and you, you can tell there's two opposite directions going on here. Yeah. So I'm like, y'all said y'all trapped here or something, right? Oh, yeah. Y'all didn't put them under the dirt. No. Okay. Were y'all doing like exposed trap sets? They have a little meeting. Yeah. Well, what were you doing? He said, well, we have our coyote traps. We put this rooster in a cage, and we put the traps around it. And I'm like, now I'm thinking, that, that's a funny exposed set. I, I mean, yeah. So they followed me the rest of the day, and they kept asking questions, which was great. And I actually had a few of them setting traps in, and we went back, and I saw the exposed rooster set. They still have one out. No, but they pulled they the pulled traps out. <laughs> they had 48 one and a half victors wired together in a daisy chain. Wow. One long wire yeah. with, with, with it knotted off on each one of the chains. So they put this poor rooster where they think a coyote's going to come, and they wire the end of the wire off to the barn right there, and they wrapped starting at the cage going further out and they made this spiraling out yeah of traps set on top of the ground and they was explaining this to me and i was in horror you know like going well did y'all catch anything well yeah we caught some coon and a few possums and i'm like did you ever catch a cow he goes no maybe we should have put this under the dirt i said all of this under the dirt <laughs> He goes, well, you're just using one. That it's like a minefield. Huh? <laughs> it was. They wrapped the first strand. That's, yeah, of, that's a classic. They just. They meant well. That's the best thing you come up with. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure they all had their meeting ahead of time. Well, if we put enough out there. Eventually we'll catch something. <laughs> but they said, you know, there's a lot of times there's like nine or ten of them fired off. We can't figure out why. You know, and that's funny. And I had just about the same thing happen. A farmer calls me, hey man, we just drove all over the place. We can't find any of your traps. I said, well, I didn't set them for you to find. Mm -hmm. So they're not meant to be found. I said, um, I'll come out there and show them because I don't normally mark my sets because I know where they are. So I'm driving them out there. I said, see, there's one right there. There's nothing in it. Of course, it's a bedded trap. And they, they just stand there looking at the ground <laughs> like, you know, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's right there. I mean, you would have seen it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would see the hole and know where the, where the lure was. It's okay, but there's obviously one there. So I go over there and sweep the dirt off, and it's, you can see mind blown. I mean, it's like completely disturbed. Mm -hmm. And we ride down. I said, look, there's a 330 right there. You know, it's 
six inches underwater with a dive stick. You'd have picked it up immediately. Anybody that traps would say, oh, there's a dive stick in the 330. You can't see the trap, but there's a run, and there's a <laughs> stick that doesn't belong there. There's a big chunk, of, big chunk of oak tree in the middle of a rice field. I mean, that obviously, you know, never saw it. And I go over there and pull the trap, and just eyes are just in complete amazement. So, you know, like I said, they just, they just don't know. So the education is more important than anything these days. And uh, all we can do is clip along and try to try to teach what we can to those that are willing to learn. Well, are you going to make more notes for next year? More notes for next year, and the 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 mink goal uh, we're going to set at 250 this year with 20% uh, more traps. I'm running six dozen traps instead of four, which I know you're looking at me like. Really? <laughs> Six dozen traps? It sounds like such a small well, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I mean, when I'm thinking like Jim Spencer, he's running 300 I know. to catch the same amount of mink. I know. It's just, it's just amazing. <clears throat> Once you get on them and learn how to catch them, like I said, I wish I could find a way to be, to be able to cover more ground in the same amount of time. It's just hard when you're in that environment. But the mink are there and the, the learning what trails they're using, and species specific trapping would get you your goal caught. And are you going to try to get 20% more land on top of the 20% I would more like trap? to be able to do that. And if I can't, then I'm going to make the biggest effort you've ever seen to catch that 20% more animals off the same amount of land because it can be done. It can be done. There's always a few more animals out there. You know that. How many years you've been trapping Texas? There's always a few. Yeah. It gets, it gets slim, but there's always this a year was slim. <laughs> this year was slim. So we just keep the faith and, uh, you know, come trap with us. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. This is always fun. It's always a good time. I'm glad, you, uh, I'm glad to see you up here in uh, Southeast Regional, October. October 11th, 12th, it's going to be in Arkadelphia. It's a four, I think it's a four-state combined Southeast Regional, Mississippi and Alabama, I mean, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Arkansas, if I'm not mistaken, all four of us, all four state associations are hosting in Arkansas, the Southeast Regional. Now, what state is Arkadelphia? Uh, Arkansas. Arkansas. It's in Southwest, if I'm not mistaken, Southwest Arkansas. Uh, it should be a good time. It's in, it's in October, right before trapping season for everybody. Everybody should be pumped up. You'll be there selling lower, I hope. October's a good month to be selling lure. Everybody's traffic season opens up in November, that. so that that's a little a little plug for the Southeast Regional NTA. Okay. So October, put it on the calendar. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, man. All right, brother.